0: USA.
1: USA. Uh, I'm not a big soccer guy. I watched some World Cup. I will say uh, those last few minutes when one team desperately needs to score and the other team desperately needs them to not score, they make for some uh, some high drama. I can appreciate it. I almost understood, like, true soccer fans watching the end of that. Um, so... Yeah, mostly going to take your calls today. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the difference between smart-seeming and silly-seeming theories about, like, the effect media and social media have on us. Uh, I was reflecting on this because Sam Harris just did an episode of his podcast where he explained why he left Twitter, leaving Twitter being something I have dreamed, fantasized about, sometimes rather explicitly for quite a long time. I've never been able to pull it off. I've only been able to stay off it for... You know, small chunks of time, um, there would be real material downsides to me leaving Twitter the way Harris did. Because I don't have, I mean, there'll be material downsides to Harris doing so too, but he has like an empire. Um, He could lose half of his subscribers and still be a millionaire. Uh, So it's different. But, you know, he talked about just the way he felt Twitter turning him into a different, worse person in part, uh, mostly dint to the fact that it only exposed him to like the worst people out there, um, which I totally resonated with me. Like most of what he said just described my experiences exactly. The one of the differences I post obsessively sometimes, he rarely posts, and um, it, it it got me wondering if there's any like hypocrisy or conflict between my view that say violent video games don't make people more violent, but Twitter does make people. More crazy. And I think there's not real contradiction there. So I, I just want to sort of say this theory out loud. If you say playing violent video games makes kids more violent, um, or makes like a lot of them more violent, I think everything can have some effect on someone. So maybe there's 10 kids who became violent because of video. Like it would be shocking if some kid didn't respond, like the same way we'd make some people go crazy, like psychosis. Rare, but it happens. But I feel like that theory relies on a bit of a logical leap where it's like, oh, you play a first person shooter, so that desensitizes you to blood and violence, therefore you become violent. And it just, there's something missing there because like the reasons people become violent is not people don't become violent because they're desensitized to violence. They become violent for a lot of other reasons. And it also, that theory leaves out the massive difference between I even like a photorealistic first person shooter and like paintball. I think I last played paintball Six years ago, but it's much more visceral and intense than even you know Call of Duty, whatever, on the max setting. So, a theory like that, I think you're just like relying on on sub theories about how humans react to stimuli that I just don't think are very well founded. Theories about social media, um, and and you could also lump in maybe theories about like teenage girls on Instagram or TikTok here, but but my focus is Twitter. <clears throat> I feel like I can tell a pretty complete provide a pretty well-rounded, complete account of how Twitter drives people crazy without having to make take any leaps. So Twitter is a place where there's journalists who are literally on it 16 hours a day between sitting at their laptop, having it on their phone. I don't have it on my phone. That's the only way in which I've been able to partially control my Twitter addiction. The constant uh, reinforcement you get, positive and negative, the incentive to say anything that pops into your head to the point where and this is an experience I know I'm not alone with <clears throat> I can be walking in the park far from my computer and a thought will pop into my head and the first thing will be I should tweet that. And I think there are some thoughts that pop in your head that would not have popped in your head at all if you weren't thinking in these sort of clipped catchphrases all the time. So there's that. There's also the cumulative cumulative effect of all that feedback. You you quickly learn what to say what not to say, the sorts of dunks that will get you a lot of acclaim, the sorts of statements that will lead to a pile on. The idea that you can be subjected to that pressure cooker of a social environment for eight, twelve, sixteen hours a day for years and not have it affect your thinking or the way you view people in your tribe or the other tribe. I don't know. To me, that would be a pretty far fetched theory. I think that's almost more of a far-fetched theory than like video games make people violent. It's just, it, it's so much more intense and you're dealing with other real life humans, even the ones hiding behind pseudonyms. So I think we should, as in all things, be moderate and nuanced in terms of like which theories about the effect of media we take seriously, which series we don't take seriously. And you just need to take them on a case by case basis. Cause like there's good ones and bad ones. And I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that intense social media usage, particularly among people who have like pre-existing mental health concerns, can have negative impacts. I just I don't see how being drowning in this stuff for hours a day couldn't have that impact. And I just think that's very different from both passive forms of media like TV or movies, and even active forms like video games that don't involve real life social interaction—at least, uh, you know—with the exception of like multiplayer games or whatever. So, um, I have some more thoughts on that. But we've got some talk- callers. I will start with Justin. What's up?
2: Hey there, Jesse. Help them come through, okay?
1: Yeah. How's it going?
2: Great. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I didn't plan to talk about this, but because you mentioned it, um, the the idea that like you will be affected by operating in a different social environment like um twitter for example or any other platform that's socially accessible like I, of course that's obvious that it's going your it, it will affect you in some way like just yeah. it'll change the dynamics of any uh, interaction but i don't i don't think it follows that it's necessarily going to be negative and and like the same could be said of anything like sitting in a classroom for X hours a day with restricted ways or like only being able to interact with fellow students for five minutes at a time between classes during that period or like I think you can come up with a lot of kind of structured ways or maybe even even just the idea that you could have completely unstructured uh, communications with somebody. Um, obviously that would change the way that people act and I don't think that we would necessarily call all of them negative or say that they should all be avoided.
1: No, I, I'm with you. I think I, I'm um, <clears throat> really describing like the media environment, media, Twitter and politics, Twitter. If you are, you know, stereotypic example, if you're a gay kid in Iran or Afghanistan and you use Twitter to connect with the broader LGBT community, I could imagine it being something of a lifeline and, and having a lot of positive interactions with other people because like um, you know, I'm stereotyping a little. I don't know what the situations like in different parts of these countries, but for the most part, it's probably hard to be openly gay there and to find other gay or trans people to talk to. In a situation like that, I think it'd have a positive impact and probably make you feel much better. Um, so I should have been more specific. But yeah, I think we're on the same page that like it's unlikely heavy social media usage doesn't have some effect. It's just a question of like, are you hanging out in toxic communities or nurturing ones or what?
2: Yeah. And I I say this as uh, I'm a a capital G gamer, um, as may have been evident. And um, like, I really got a lot of, I think, positive social benefits out of doing that. Like I I joined in groups, I made like pretty serious friends. Um, And and even with my real life friends, this is a thing that helps us bond by like, you know, being able to express ourselves in this environment together. You know, it's just kind of social lube in, in in a certain way. So like a, I, I always get a, a bit concerned when I read the doom saying around online interaction is is a is a death pill because like truthfully like I have a very different experience from that and yeah it, it probably depends a lot on how and where you're you're doing it specifically
1: yeah I mean look I have real life friends who where the friendship started with like uh, DMs on Twitter um so yeah I've had some of the same experience and and I think. Any kind of like accumulation, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, gathering around a shared interest, if it's like a a healthy interest, uh, probably leads to real life friendships and real life relationships. And that's always good. Um, Yeah, I'm just describing a corner of Twitter that is uh, the only shared interest is like sociopathy, I think.
2: Uh, Yeah, uh, unfortunately, the media Twitter probably is like that. Um, I did want to mention something about uh, the soccer game today or the football game for folks overseas. Um, thank you for translating so they would understand what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I know it was necessary, but I feel like people would be me shit otherwise. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, soccer's had this weird thing where for a long time, they were one of the only sports that wouldn't kind of like go to the tape whenever there was a dodgy call. And apparently that's recently been changed. Um, I don't follow it that much, but has this helped the problem of, like, dives in the sport, which it's notorious for?
1: Yeah, I I was very curious about that because I, too, was surprised that, like, replay was a factor. So there was that crucial end-of-game non-call where uh, Iran would have had a penalty kick, which um, I forget what the percentage is. I think uh, professional players hit, like, 80 to 85% of the penalty kicks. And it was sort of – it was obvious from the replay – actually, I don't know if they even – if the ref ended up checking it, but he could have checked it and he would have, did. he would have seen that. Sorry. Say that again.
2: I said, I don't think they did. Check. Yeah.
1: I don't think it but it's an example of like, if he had, he would have seen um, the American player, like sort of arm the Iranian guy, but it was obviously not a natural motion. He did dive. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll be sure if other folks watch more and want to mention in chat or call it, I'm curious. Cause yeah, soccer has a huge problem with diving a sport. I'm much more familiar with the NBA is also very susceptible to diving. And I think their replay has probably helped a little bit as has um, there's like, there's sort of technically some rules against diving, although I don't know the details and it's hard to enforce them.
2: Great. Yeah. I hope someone uh, fills in that detail. Thanks a lot, Jesse.
1: Thanks for the call, Justin. Neil, what is up?
3: Right at this very moment, the second Mario movie trailer is premiering. So just know that I chose to talk to you over watching it live i'm I'm humbled and honored uh so anyway as your resident weeb i felt the need to call in to correct a few of the things that were wrong or misrepresented in the Macedon lowly article that katie read from okay so firstly it draws the distinction and between... lowly
1: is lolicon which is like
3: uh sort of on the border of child pornography but not oh I- i'm gonna get to that okay. <laughs> so uh i'm staying with, I-, I say it with an m because the com is from complex so, lowly con is like a bad romanization. Anyway, so the article distinguishes between lowly con and gido. Sorry, we, we, sorry, which article is this? The the one that you guys linked. It's like the uh, the Ma- Macedon WTF timeline. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and Katie Katie read from it. So um, so it's not really accurate. The distinction between uh, because lowly only refers to females, and the male equivalent is shoda. So really, it's lowly and shoda versus child porn. Um, and so then secondly, it also, I think it downplays child porn in Japan because while production and distribution were made illegal in 1999, possession was only made illegal in 2014. And this article was only written in 2017. So the idea that you're an evil sickle monster for liking child porn is certainly not true in like all Japanese circles and calling it highly illegal is kind of hiding the ball. Um, even though it was true, you know, in 2017, that was still legal. Um, and then so also, uh, like every now and then you'll still see news stories of, oh, this manga artist was busted for child porn because they kept some post criminalization in 2014, or they tried to import some from Germany or whatever. So I, I just think it's more common than this article would have you believe. Oh, yeah, so, that's I say that as someone who's like still like, it's like a total weed. Uh, yeah. And then lastly, the one line that really caught my eye was like, obviously, Twitter has banned Lolicon. And it's like, well... I guess that's true, but what was obvious about it? It only happened in 2019, and lots of artists were outraged about it. And wait a minute, this article was written in 2017. So Lowly wasn't even banned at the time of the writing of the article. So that's just like a blatant factual error. And so it is true now, but I don't know, it was just framed incorrectly. And so I thought it was really funny to hear you guys cover this because, you know, I've called in about this exact issue before, right? The distinction between fictional child pornography and actual child pornography and how basically like only Japan gets it, right? And like few other countries in America is like infringing on free speech in this way. But um, so I don't know. I thought exposing it to more people was good, but maybe some of the fact checking could have been better rather than just relying on this one article.
1: That's fair enough. I appreciate the uh, feedback.
3: Okay.
0: Thanks.
3: I had other. I had a, another thing as well. So um, you, you tweeted how you thought there was like no chance that Elon or that Apple would delist uh, Twitter, but then yeah. Elon is now claiming that Apple's threatening to do exactly that. Of course, Elon could be like making, you know, like hyping up when it's like not true but but what what are your thoughts on like the updates right because now he's threatening to make a phone i
1: didn't i didn't see that he he's he literally said they're threatening to delist us
3: yeah he said they're threatening to delist them and they're not gonna they're not saying why but of course i mean you have you kind of have to rely on elon but but i think it's i feel like it wouldn't i was never in the no chance camp and i think that him tweeting this at least like goes up but then you could say it's oh it's his fault like if he's doing something behind the scenes that makes it happen but yeah, I don't, yeah, know. We'll
1: I don't know. I just, I find it, it's so hard for me to imagine that happening and it would be so ridiculous given all the apps on the Apple and, and Android store where people can just say whatever they want. Like, they yeah. you know, Ghost is a decentralized publisher where you can publish neo-Nazi propaganda,
3: so. But I think the argument would be that Ghost doesn't have, like, the reach that Twitter does, so that Twitter has, like, a bigger, like, effect if it's spreading, like, misinformation mis- and, and, like, harming people. So, you know, I, I don't know, we'll see. Yeah. um well, right, it's worth And then an Dystopia just said Apple took Fortnite off, but Fortnite basically what Epic did was they so Apple gets a thirty percent cut or is supposed to, but then Fortnite put in like a direct payment to Epic that like skirted the thirty percent cut, which breaks Apple's terms of service. So that's why they removed it. So uh, that sounds not, like a pretty straightforward argument over over money. Uh, yeah. And then Epic sued. It was like this whole thing. Um, gotcha.
1: Anyway. Um, nice to call it. Appreciate yeah. it. Go watch your uh your Mario trailer. Noel, what's up, Noel? Noelle, unmute yourself, or I'll uh, jump to Sean and then get you after. All right, let's go to uh, Sean. Oh, Noel came back. Well, Sean, I got you now. There you go.
4: Hey, I was just um, calling about your interview with Catherine D. And in it, you talked about, uh, you had this example where you were talking about a 14-year-old who identified as asexual. And I was just wondering, like, did you take that from the re- most recent season of Big Mouth?
1: I did not. Is there an asexual? I've only seen one or one and a half, two seasons of Big Mouth. I thought it was hilarious. There's an asexual 14-year-old.
4: Okay, so you probably watched the first two seasons. It goes quite off the rails in a very different direction from the third season on, or maybe the fourth season. Yeah. Uh but yeah, there is a character, like one of the main plot threads in the in the most recent season is one of the characters is an asexual 14-year-old who dates Missy, if you remember that character. I do remember Missy. Uh and the conclusion is like an adult who is asexual telling him that it's fine for him to be asexual. And then he's worried about Missy no longer wanting to date him because obviously she is not asexual. <laughs> And then she, she's just like, it's fine.
1: Wait, she's fine? <laughs> I, I sort of feel bad for Missy.
4: Yeah, I mean... Uh, how is, that, how is that
1: fine? It's not... Why would it be fine to... Well, anyway, I should watch it. I Yes, I am... Um, I'm sure there are people who are asexual. I've written about this a couple of times. I think there's a sense in which we reify identity labels and I don't necessarily think it's healthy for 13 or 14-year-olds To swim around in like online ecosystems where any hesitation about sex or awkwardness surrounding sex, they might be told, "Oh, that means you're asexual." I just I can see a lot of kids misinterpreting that, but um, that's funny that Big Mouth went that far in that direction.
4: Well, the particularly funny thing is obviously the kids are literally going through puberty. So if you're like fourteen, you know, there's a there's a range of when these things literally occur, right? Which yeah. So it might just literally
1: be they haven't hit puberty yet.
4: Yeah, I mean, and it's not, it's like not considered.
1: Yeah. Uh, thanks, Sean. I, I think I'll check that out. No, I'm not sure I want to, but maybe I'll just check it out for the hate watching. I did like the the first couple seasons were great, although I'm, uh, thanks for the call, Noel. I'm, I'm not Noel, uh, Sean. I'm a little nostalgic because I, I associate them with much better times, like 2019. Noel, what's up?
5: Hi, Jesse Single. How are you? Good. How are you? Fine. Thanks. Um, So I just want to ask you what you think about my idea. I, since I read, I read all your articles about studies on um, supporting um, medical care for trans or medical interventions for gender questioning teens. And it seems like it's really hard to get doctors to put their science caps on and to take their doctor caps off yeah, because they know they're trained to read these studies. That's why they went to medical school. I mean, part I will, of it. Say,
1: I will say there was a, a encouraging letter to the editor today by, um, yes, with uh, it mass general, this like really well credentialed doctor saying like, no, there's a lot we don't know about puberty blockers, but yes, broadly speaking, I agree with you.
5: I did read that. Um, I'm trying to cut down on my reading about this topic because it gets a little depressing. but yeah. if i could if we can just get doctors to put their science hats on for a little bit and read the methods and read the stats, they're smart. they know how to do that, and it's almost impossible to get them to read an article.
6: Yeah. That's
5: what I found. It took me five months to get my pediatrician to read um anything. So my idea is that I talk to uh, um, a friend of mine who's also connected a little bit to Sweden with the Karolinska Institute, I think that's how you say it, yeah. is what if doctors in America, instead of trying to get the AME and the Academy of Pediatrics and um, all these organizations to change, instead started using their CME money, their uh, continuing education money, which most most docs get about 5000 a year, and started doing training directly at the Karolinska Institute, and started taking continuing ed that way, and improving knowledge, or you know, just looking at what what the latest research is. Um, doing conferences and th- or even telemed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know anything about how continuing education works in medicine. When you say they get five thousand a year, who do they who do they get that from?
5: Um, well. My husband gets it from his employer, like the hospital. I mean, and then the ones that don't get – don't have a hospital money usually have <coughs> money to pay for it themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say I don't I don't think they should need to go to Sweden because I think there's American <laughs> cl- clinicians who um, – American clinicians who can probably do really good training on this sort of thing. I actually um, – I just heard about one who, who is going to be doing some training. So I'm you know, that I think that's a, a good idea. Although Karolinska has also had some like pretty dark stuff going on lately. There was a yeah. scandal okay. there. But um I get oh. what you're saying. I, I found it I just saw um something published by the Hastings Center, which is this like center for bioethics, where where they took at face value this this University of Washington study that's just like oh genuinely maybe the worst study ever published on this subject. It's so bad. So they really, you're right. They refuse to put their scientist hat caps on. They refuse to read the studies. And these are people in positions of authority. I think these research, these were doctors at um, UPenn medical school. So it just, it, it, it leaves you a little bit jaw dropped and it's frustrating.
5: It's especially upsetting because my whole family is, um, we're all Huskies and my husband went to university. I just cannot believe that that happened. And I really am. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't. The media didn't co- didn't cover it very well at all. I mean, I think your articles, multiple articles, were really good. My idea is just maybe, yeah, like you said, even get doctors here in the U.S. to start doing some actual uh, serious uh, scientific literature evaluations. Yeah. And anyway, that's that's all. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate Pretty it.
1: Sure. I think I do think things are improving and that there's more nuanced voices sort of uh, speaking up. What's up, Lauren?
6: Hi, Jesse. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how much of Tumblr politics has infiltrated Twitter and around what year that happened? So I was a pretty active Tumblr user in the 2010s and I had to walk away from it cause it was so toxic and crazy. You, you felt like it was like sort of affecting your mental health? It really was, yeah,
5: yeah. yeah.
6: Um, and I started using Twitter um, around 2020 just cause there was so much happening in the world. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot of the politics of Tumblr in the 2010s is really active on Twitter. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe a lot of those folks back then, 10 years later, have sort of migrated to Twitter and,
1: Jeez. you
6: know, are really affecting the discourse and the politics or our national politics um, in ways that are really concerning to me, especially when journalists are on Twitter for so many hours of day. Do you have that sense at all? And like, what are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, have you, have you read much of Catherine D's stuff? Do you know that name? I, I don't know
6: her. Oh, okay. So you
1: should, if a, if you listen to, uh, I recently did an interview Catherine D D E E on the podcast. She also has an article in American conservative with a title, something like how Tumblr affected American politics. Um, so she's exactly the expert on this in a way I'm not, she's like spent real time on Tumblr and talked to a lot of people who have, um, I would also imagine that if you reached out to her on, um, Twitter, she she'd have some thoughts, but she just knows way more about this stuff than I do and she's like the person to
6: asked. Okay, that's that's I'll definitely look into that. Cool. It 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 seems like Tumblr is like the the platform that a lot of young women migrated to in the 2010s and maybe early 20s. I think that's the way right. The that yeah. young men migrated <laughs> to like 4chan. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What, what um out of curiosity if you don't mind saying what effects did you feel it was having on your mental health
6: I started a blog on like dreadlocks or, or dreads because at the time that was something I was doing for myself and I was very naive and I thought that would just be a good idea to create and share with people um, you are you're, you're white I take it no? I'm I uh, know I'm I'm African American. Okay.
1: I thought you were saying you were a white girl who started a, I was like I think I can see why things went wrong for you.
6: <laughs> well, um, I didn't actually show my face on Tumblr, but people assumed I was white. Really? And that was the problem oh, God. Um, I was faced with and got accused of being a white woman who was culturally appropriating.
1: <laughs> oh, God. there's um, Phoebe, Phoebe Malt-Bovee has a good book called The Perils of Privilege. And one of the things she points out is that like one of the more messed up things about this dis- about privilege discourse is like, you sort of have to reveal personal aspects of yourself just to take place in conversations. Whereas like, you know, the utopian vision we had of the internet is people should be able to just say
0: whatever they want, regardless of who they are. Is that called deference politics? uh yeah yeah i think it's like i'd
1: say it's related to like Identitarian deference but um she she just put it in the context of like call out culture and privilege i think her book came out in like 2014 but yeah i think yeah you're you're right actually it it's basically that because if you had said they're like forcing you to disclose something about yourself at which point they probably if you had like quote unquote proven you were black they just would have backed off
6: right if i could prove it and they agreed or believed it it, it, I don't think it would have mattered because then I would be like, well, you're just selling out because you're showing photos of all people wearing dreadlocks, and that's not accepted on Tumblr.
1: God, That sounds very <laughs> unpleasant. I'm sorry about that.
6: Yeah. What, what was the name of the book again?
1: The Perils of Privilege by Phoebe Maltz, uh, Bovey, B-O-V-Y. Highly recommend it.
6: Okay. Thank you. I'll check that out.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, reach out to Catherine D. I bet you'll have some thoughts.
6: Okay. Thanks. Right. A.
1: That is funny that I'm so, like, internet poisoned when someone said they did a, uh, a website about dreadlocks. I was like, oh, that must have been a white person who did it. <laughs> anyway, what's up, A?
0: Hi, uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on the uh, the new developments and the most insane story of the decade, I imagine, uh, with Kanye West meeting up with Nick Fuentes and his appearance on the uh, Tim Pool uh, podcast, and he's walking out uh, out of something, kind <laughs> of even the idea that maybe... The Jews don't run the media. Is, is yeah, so that? we're we're going to be
1: doing an episode on this stuff, and I haven't quite dived into my research yet, but, but that's how it was described to me, too. Is that literally what happened, that Kanye was so offended that Tim Pool offered resistance to an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that he walked out?
0: Here's the exchange more or less verbatim. Uh, Tim says, uh, the media, they have really mistreated you. And they're like, yeah, they, they, hmm, they. And they're like, no, 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 I don't mean they by the way you mean it. It's not they. And Kanye's like, it's not they? And then he walks out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, he, the little clip of it I saw, and I, I am going to watch more of it, obviously, but he just, Kanye just looks so visibly unwell. And it's so depressing. I can just, like, think about you know, I'm not a super fan, but like a lot of people, his music's had an impact on me and just what he's become. Men- mental health is a bitch, man. It sucks.
0: It's horrifying. I mean, it's I would never have guessed. You know, one of the most influential artists of our generations now, maybe affiliated with white nationalism. Yeah. It's, especially because he's not white. It's, it's really insane. It's um, so bad. and Milo Yiannopoulos being resurrected from like honestly, if you're interested in like internet like. Uh, politics stuff. Like some of the most rogues gallery figures have just come out of the woodwork for this Kanye thing. It it vaguely
1: reminds me of like during the Trump years when like suddenly Rudy Giuliani was back, just like just like the worst people imaginable just like popping up. Like I'm not dead yet. I'm back now. I'm back
0: in your life. It's it's really demoralizing. It's horrible. And also, I mean, you've, I've watched Kanye and some of these shows, and it, I kind of get where it's like I, I can see how you being a guy who has mental Illness issues and his kind of conspiratorial can see this kind of thing, and he's like, "Well, I don't think he hates all Jews." He's kind of like just generalizing, but in this interview, like he really did just walk off at the mere mention that potentially it was not a Jewish conspiracy, <laughs> and like, and he, yeah, he he's a dude. He's a, they, he's, a, he's
1: a snowflake.
0: It's it's insane, and I don't believe it is honestly frightening to me. Uh, that someone like Nick Fuentes is going to have like a larger impact on the culture potentially because of this. I mean, he, I guess it's going to be running Kanye's campaign. Uh, it's, it's really nuts. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to mention that I, I saw coverage of Nick Fuentes as like an, as like an online person, I kind of have some background knowledge about this guy, but some people who I think I heard the fifth column talk about this, I heard you talk about this uh, recently as well. At some point, you talked about Fuentes. Um, I, I take exception to him being called an incel by the fact that he called himself an incel, which I, I get the confusion. But he is just like an irony poison guy. He's, you know, he's he knows that this word is in the ether. People use it to call like young men who are disaffected incels. Yeah. I just don't think it's accurate that he's a guy who is trying to, to get laid and he can't. One, because he's not bad looking and he's, he's probably pretty wealthy. But for two, he's a Christian conservative. He's constantly talking about how he doesn't like he's, uh, having sex before marriage is wrong. right? Right. This is like what he's clearly trying to say. And um, in some ways, I think he's kind of baiting people to be like, oh, you're an incel. You know, you don't get laid. Therefore, you're wrong. Whereas yeah. a lot of conservative Christians will say what? It's it's, what's wrong with not having sex before marriage? That's what, it's what he believes in. Is that you kind of He's, like, kind of baiting them into this idea. And also, a lot of the complaints about him are, like, oh, you don't get laid. Like, oh, it's like bullying. It's, like, it's ironically, like, some of the most, you know, these, like, left-wing people are, you know, pull out the, uh, you know, you're ugly or you, you know. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of that on, like, lefty Twitter, you know.
0: Exactly. And it's, like, he's kind of convincing them. For the yeah, I think you, right. hey, you cut yes, off. Right. You said he's convincing them what you mentioned. These guys to, like reach for these things and he's like laughing at them for being wrong. Uh, but he does call himself an incel, but that's like I just don't think it's accurate. But a lot of things he says is kind of in that vein where he's kind of like baiting people into saying things about him publicly and then like laughing behind their back from like they're not getting it, right? Yeah,
1: yeah I think, um there's a there's a problem with like the coverage of a lot of guys like that where they just are sort of taken at face value, especially reporters who like aren't familiar with like, you know, trollish online culture. So yeah, I think um, that 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 was a useful call just in terms of like my own way of like how to structure the episode and so on.
0: Yeah, I, I get it, but I really get why people are confused about it. Um, and but like, I do. It's it's kind of a compelling. It's a kind of continuation of the issue of like the capitalist thing of people in like the mainstream media kind of thing who just aren't that on They're online, but in an online is very like uh, professional sense. They're just not that acquainted with sort of like a meme internet uh, culture. And they kind of can misreport this kind of thing. Uh, and in some, some ways I think it kind of can empower people like that. Cause if, if anyone is like uh, aware of it, they can see how like bad reporting is on that level.
1: Yeah. I um... so anyway, that- yeah, no, no, that's a, That's an endemic problem in my like, coverage of online controversies and online culture. So uh, it's a definitely a good point.
0: Anyway, yeah, I'm horrified. I hope that uh, Kanye sees how crazy he's being and I hope that they don't take all his money before it's over. Uh, and it's just Me really it's upsetting. So, it's
1: such an upsetting story. It's hard to feel any. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank you for the call. Uh,
0: thank um, you.
1: Just responding to one comment from Lamno. Is Lamno Noel? Yeah. Uh, Could you do a YouTube class on how to break down medical journal studies for quote-unquote dummies? One, look who funded the study. Two, is the ACLU behind the study, etc. Three basic stats. Um, Well, I'm not going to be doing like a YouTube thing on that. I would say uh, first of all, my book covers a lot of basic stuff about like, that's more psychology research, but a lot of the same logic applies. Um, Is who funded the study? I would say that in only the tiniest fraction of the cases is the funding itself an issue. So who funded the study? I don't know, University of Washington, University of Chicago. It's like just big mainstream institutions that you can often trust. It's just the incentives are all messed up. So even trustworthy institutions or formerly trustworthy ones can do bad research. Um, it's rare that you'll like find out the ACLU is behind a study. The ACLU, thank you for buying my book. You're going to be the one. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't know how much like polling research the ACLU does. Institutions don't tend to hide that. Um, so all I'm saying is that, yeah, learning to become a savvy consumer of science is difficult. I'm still out there. I still have to rely on statisticians for like fairly basic stuff, including my debunking of the UW study. But, um, yeah, you can't, you're not gonna learn that much just by seeing who funded it. Cause like a lot of people fund it and it's usually just universities um oh sometimes you can you know uh researchers should disclose sometimes they will get money from like a questionable source jack turbin is a guy who i really disagree with he got some sort of uh, money from like a pharmaceutical company my understanding is like it's not that rare and it wasn't that much money so i, I don't i try not to jump on that sort of conflict of interest stuff unless it's severe that's probably something I should look more into and get more informed about. But um, anyway, that's a good question, Noel. Yeah, there will be no YouTube series, but uh, buy my book and read my stuff. Uh, maybe at some point I'll do some sort of primer, more accessible primer than my book. I got to think about that, it could be good. Okay, I got to wrap it up. I got to do some uh, some work myself. I'm working on uh, some media criticism for my newsletter, but thank you guys as always for listening. I would just ask you if you like what I'm doing here, tell other people about it. And yeah, that's it. Have a good night. Bye.